I'm Josh Swartz. And I'm William Millingworth. Host of the High Tech Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned, and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Meg Flanagan, and she has a consulting business called Meg Flanagan Education Solutions. She gives advice to parents, both military and civilian, in helping them navigate the challenges that they might face with school, like with IEPs and 504s and so much more. Awesome conversation. You are going to learn so very much. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you uh, reached out to a friend, a colleague, a relative, a neighbor, and just said, uh, hey, do you listen to Teaching Learning Leading K-12? Hmm? It's a podcast and you should. And uh, here's the link. <laughs> that would be awesome. Thanks for thinking about it. Thanks for doing it. And uh, enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Milletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, uh, ah, uh, with Dot Stimoletto. Meg Flanagan is an educator who is passionate about helping families find peaceful, practical solutions to school problems. After serving as a tutor, she noticed that many families were unsure about who to ask or what to do when it came to getting their child the best help at school. This is a concern that is universal. As a mom, she knows just how hard it is to remain clear-headed in the face of a crisis that could impact her kids. She loves serving as a voice of reason and a moderator when parents are overwhelmed and struggling to figure out the best things to help their child learn and grow. She is ready to use her decade of experience as a teacher and mom to help your family find sanity and solutions to stressful school problems. Meg, thanks for joining me today. Great to have you on the show and say hi to everyone. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Steve. Well, it's great to have you here. And uh, uh, Meg, before we get into what you are doing now, let's talk about you as a teacher working with kids. What do you like most about working with kids? I think my favorite part about working with children and in particular being an educator is that spark you see in a kid's eye when they've struggled with something for a really long time or they find something really challenging and all of a sudden it just clicks. Um, and so one of the, I, I teach intervention at a private school in addition to my other work. So I had a, a child um, a few years ago who literally very little phonological awareness, um, really, really, really struggling. Um, and I had this child back again last year in my classroom, and they went from not being able to read even at a most basic level to reading at the end of the next grade level. And so seeing that child, that click mid-year of going from not being a reader to being a reader, oh my gosh, that was just the best. That's cool. That's cool. Yes. I, there's nothing better than uh, light bulbs going off or the, the things happening as they start learning and figuring out how to do. And that's, yeah, that's cool stuff. Thanks. Yeah. So can you tell us what inspired you to become an advocate for students and parents? So I'm a military spouse. And so I move about every year to three or four years. Um, we're on our longest dwell time right now. So we've been in our current location for about four years. Um, but moving around the country and uh, making friends in different places, I've noticed that parents, especially military parents, have a hard time keeping up with what is legal, what is best practice, and what is frankly ethical for their child in K-12 schools. 
Um, not everyone understands educational jargon or terminology. I mean, you and I could probably sit here all day and, and dish the dirt on those, you know, educational acronyms and, you know, go real hog wild on that. But parents don't always understand that. And so what I was, you alluded to me being a tutor. I ran my own tutoring business for a while um, when I was first married. And what I noticed is that parents were asking for things or just confused about things that the schools could or could not offer. Um, and so I had a couple of families ask me for help, you know, requesting interventions or being shocked when I said, well, you know, you can just request that the school test your child. Oh, I, I can do that. Well, I didn't know. Yeah, you can. It's, it's, you can, it's a thing. Um, and so I, as I progressed in my career and moving around, I realized, you know, this is somewhere where there's a need for education and compassion um, and someone who really gets it as a parent, as a teacher, as a military mom, um, to step in and fill a void that is not being served on an individual level. Excellent. I, you know, that's, uh, and you're so right. A lot of times they don't realize that just ask <laughs> or yeah. they don't realize what it is that you're wanting to, to talk about. So um, good stuff. I, I, you know, and, and we're getting ready to get into to something that uh, we need to make sure we, that everybody's listening knows about. So before I ask you about um, talking about IEPs, can you tell the audience what an IEP is? Absolutely. So I'm going to talk about two things. I'm actually going to talk about IEPs and also 504s. So they're, Two very similar things, but have a lot of strategic differences. So first, 504. So when you're talking about a section 504, this is for a plan for a child to access education. Um, and a lot of parents get confused about this because um, they hear IEP, IEP, IEP. Not every child with a disability needs an IEP. Sometimes they just need that ramp into the building. So with a 504, so it's under the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's a specific section. If you don't know what it is, please watch Crip Camp on Netflix. Um, Judy Human is an incredible person, and this documentary is a really great insight into the long fight that people with physical, mental, um, and frankly, any disability, allergies, uh, anxiety, depression, mental health, had to be able to just live in our world. So anyway, 504. It's like a ramp into the building. It's larger print text. It's extended time on assignments. Um, you're not changing the benchmark for the child. So if everyone in fourth grade needs to know their zero to 12 math, math facts, your child will also need to know those math facts. It may take them a little longer. They may be having a, a longer time to show their knowledge on a test or whatever, but they still have to show that same exact knowledge. With an IEP or an individualized education plan, your child's benchmarks are different. There are goals written into the plan that you agree upon that are based on lots of assessment and data that are different from the learning goals, the standards of learning um, for grade level knowledge than any other child in the grade. So everyone else might be reading, um, let's say, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, to learn about World War I. Your child will also be learning similar content standards, but using different materials, using a different standard of mastery. Um, you're, in the 504, you're changing the environment. In the IEP, you're changing the content. 
Um, and it also falls under a different law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, which is administered by the Department of uh, Education. Um, Section 504, while it does have educational components, it's not necessarily an education policy. It's a whole life policy. Sorry, that's really long-winded. No, no. We talked about about this for (laughs) for years. (laughs) Uh, No, I appreciate you taking time to talk about it because that's – that's, you know, that's what we're going to get into here in just a second, because yeah. you're an advocate for, uh, for parents and children. And so, and one of the aspects that you, uh, you focus on is uh, um, understanding what to do when uh, they're getting ready to have a meeting or someone's talked about this or, or they may not know about it. And, uh, and uh, so with that being said, I got to start by saying, by asking this. So what do you think is wrong with many IEP meetings? So um, there are lots of things that could go better um, in any IEP meeting. Um, So the first one is transparency. Uh, Oftentimes parents walk into a meeting and they don't know what the meeting is going to be about. They know they're having a meeting or they've requested a meeting. They don't know how the meeting is going to go. They don't know what the, the school side team has talked about behind closed doors off the record before the meeting. And so the school team has had lots of time to coordinate and collaborate and they haven't done it in writing and they haven't done it with the parents, but they have come in many cases have come to a decision about what is right for this child in advance of the meeting. And this is illegal. It's called predetermination. Um, and even though it is illegal and frankly unethical, it still happens in many cases where the school team comes in and decides they're either going to offer this child this thing or they're not going to offer this child this thing based on conversations that they've had behind the scenes and while i don't want to deny educators the right to have those conversations because they are important to talk about a child um educationally with other educators and other service support professionals like physical therapists and speech and language pathologists and um adaptive pe teachers you have to you cannot make the decision before you have the discussion with the parents. You can have possible solutions and possible options, but you should never walk into a meeting as a teacher, an admin, or a support provider with a this is how it is. So transparency. Keeping the parents involved is my first big quibble. The second thing, which kind of falls from transparency and honesty and um, involving the parents, is an us versus them mentality which comes from teachers understanding, as as I alluded to earlier, it comes from teachers understanding how education works in in an academic sense, in that we can talk about education and acronyms, and I can, you know, know, SLP and PT and OT and support services and assistive tech and uh, SOLs, great. Uh, you, I know what those mean, and you know what those mean as an educator, but mom and dad or grandma, grandpa, or whatever adults the child has in the room do not know what those mean in many cases. And so a lot of parents come into the meeting and they feel snowballed um, and attacked by what the team is saying. So even though the teachers definitely have the child's best interests at heart, the language that they're using to present the ideas is overwhelming and hurtful because it's overwhelming, right? And it, the parents walk away feeling like they've just faced a firing squad and survived by the skin of their teeth. 
And then they have to make a decision based on that information. Um, the third thing that's wrong with IEPs and could go better is bullying. I get it. Admin, district level, state level, school level comes down on the people in the meeting to get a signed IEP or a signed 504 plan at the table that day because they want to implement the solution. And so the grownups, the, the students, adults feel like they need to sign a document at the meeting. Now, in many cases, whether they sign or not does not actually make a big difference um, because special education law and consent to new IEPs or continuing IEPs is uh, different in every state. Some states require you to sign every single time that there is a change, and some states do not require you to sign. There just has to be a documentation of a discussion and an agreement. However, parents feel like they need to sign at the table without taking it home and sleeping on it and thinking about it. Um, and you can, parents can take it home. And so I've had parents come to me and say, you know, oh, Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so is, is hounding me to get this IEP back to them. Do I need to sign it at the table? No, take it home. Call me. Let, let me read it first. And then I'll tell you what's, what should happen next or tell you your choices in a very clear parent friendly way. Um, the last thing that I think is challenging for IEPs is the use of language to describe a child. So as an admin, you've definitely sat in on IEP meetings. A lot of IEP meetings feel like they are weakness-based instead of strength-based. So we're talking about a child, what a child cannot do and the areas in, of need that they have as opposed to the areas of strength that they have and what they can do. So I actually just had a, a meeting recently for a child who is academically very strong but behaviorally has some challenges. And the entire meeting, the data was excellent. This child has made amazing progress. They're following the rules. They're doing the right thing. But the, most of the meeting revolved around one particular data point that was significantly lower, not even really significantly lower. It's 13 points lower than their next lowest data point which isn't a big deal to me. It's above the 50th percentile mark. So anyway, so this, this particular child, they're focusing on this one little thing, this one little thing that's wrong, as opposed to saying, well, gosh, everything else is going really well. Let's see how we can, she, this child has all these amazing strengths. How can we boost up this one particular area that is slightly weaker than everywhere else? And slightly, not a lot, just slightly. It's not a problem. It's just, if we had talked about her strengths as opposed to her weaknesses, how different that meeting would have been. That makes perfect sense. That's, you know, that's one of those things <laughs> where uh, it focused on just one aspect of it, having... You know, we, we talked before we started recording about uh, um, some of the things I've experienced as a high school principal. And uh, one of the, uh, you know, one of them is that type of stuff where you have to kind of say to someone, well, have you listened to what they're suggesting or what they're thinking? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've actually had some specific conversations where, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, you could tell what was going on. The answer was no, 
even though they didn't say that to me, they really weren't listening to the parent who was saying that, you know, you're focused only on this. In this case, this parent was saying, you're only focused on this aspect of my child and I really want it to be a bigger aspect of it. And, um, and so we had to come to terms. That was an interesting aspect of moving into a new school and parent got, got with me and said, Hey, can I talk to you about something? I know you don't know me yet and you don't know my child, but let's talk. And, and so, you know, and as a principal who went in to change things in my schools, you always had parents who met you first. (laughs) Now, Mm -hmm. sometimes it was, because of things like this, sometimes it was because of, you know, can you fix that? Or, you know, I, I want to tell you about me before you hear too many stories about me type of thing. So there's any number of stuff. And, um, and I, it's interesting because a lot of times some of what you discovered was uh, um, in IEP meetings or 504 meetings or anything like this, you know, something to try and figure out something to help the child. Uh, a parent feels intimidated. And I kind of wanted to ask you to comment about uh, um, something that if you were to give advice, you know, to a, uh, uh, well, before we get to advice, let's, let's talk about, you know, what do you think would help a school be more successful, um, help parents be more successful in a IEP or uh, meeting, uh, you know, that, that a school could make sure happens? What I mean, what do you think? Absolutely. I think providing the, a draft IEP with the note. So I, I have two minds about draft IEPs, right? I don't like predetermination, but I don't like parents to go in blind to what the school is thinking. So I always have my personal clients email the school two weeks before a scheduled meeting and say, Hey, could I, could you send me a copy, a PDF copy of that draft IEP? I know it's not set in stone. I, but I, I would like to know where your head, where, your thinking is, where your head is at, and what the data says. And so I like to ask for a draft IEP, and I like to ask for, um, for data, whatever data has been collected about this child that is driving these goals, because IEP goals should be based in data. And if you don't have update, updated grades, updated work samples, updated standardized assessments, if there hasn't been a triennial evaluation at the correct times or annual evaluations at the correct times, then you don't have any data on the child, so you can't make accurate goals. And the parent can't accurately comment on the propositions from the school. So every parent, before they walk into the meeting, should have two things. They should have all the data that is about their child that is going to be used to inform the goals, and they should have a sample of what those goals might be from the school. And the school should absolutely put both of those things in parent-friendly language. So I've had um, some interesting IEP goals written over the years, and parents will come to me and say, I don't know what this means. And it's a, and as a teacher reading it, I can say, oh, you know what they want your kids to do? They want them to be able to rhyme using short vowel consonant patterns. They want them to do the short vowel like at, ed, it, word families. They want them to find the rhymes. But they've written it in such a way that that is, unless you have a degree in education and some years of experience, uh, you're not going to get that. And so the goal should be written in a way that parents can understand, oh, this is the skill that they're assessing. This is what they want my kid to do. This is how they're going to know if my child is successful. 
And this is how often they're going to take that assessment data to see where the success, if there is success there. So uh, for me, an ideal IEP goal should be written like, um, by the end of this IEP cycle, Steve will be able to book 50 podcast guests from a field of 75 potential guests with, you know, 75%, whatever, success rate measured at measured quarterly. You know what you're supposed to do. You know how many chances you're going to have to do it. You know what success looks like, and you know how often it's going to be measured. And that's what an IEP goal should be. But parents don't get IEP goals written like that. They get things written like, uh, you know, Steve is going to increase his podcast booking guest success uh, by the end of the school year. Well, okay, well, what does that look like? Right. What kind of guest does he need? How often are we going to check in on this? And so parents are left in the dark. But then also they don't have the data to understand where their kid is. They don't know how many guests you've booked this year so far. They don't know your growth point for the next academic year. And because they don't have that information, they can't make good decisions. So that is the number one thing that schools can do to make the IEP meeting more successful for everybody. Um, and then for the student, especially at the middle school and high school level, for students to be engaged at the level that they're at. Um, when I have high school clients, I like to make sure the parent understands, like, your kid is my client. Like, I do nothing unless your child wants me to do it. Every meeting we have, I want your kid there. Whether it's just a me and you, me, just, a, just a consult meeting, your kid's going to be there too. If it's an IEP meeting, your kid's going to be there too. Every single thing happens with your child's express consent if they are able to provide that intellectually, mentally, emotionally. If they are able to provide consent, they have to provide it. So they're a young adult. And that's what you could do at a high school, middle school level to help prepare kiddos for that off-ramp to whatever comes next. Like it, like it. That's, a, that's awesome stuff. I mean, it's, you know, one of the Thanks. things now, now, now using me against me now that I, now hang on a second. I got, I got to, I'm going to have to write down those goals. Those are pretty good goals you gave me right there. So, <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I can see that too. That's one of the problems that, uh, you know, if they're not really adept at writing goals for somebody and then they just write something that's not specific and it's not just kind of, kind of rambles um and may not even target what the real needs are um mm -hmm. that's not cool so uh so i gotta ask you this before we go any further uh so what do you think about uh when you walk in as a parent and you got your child and there's like eight people sitting on the other side and uh I mean, what do you think about that i i deeply dislike it as a person i'm not even though I'm an advocate, I'm not really a confrontational kind of person. I don't like having arguments. I don't like to throw down, you know, I'm, I'm not that kind of person. I'm more of the peaceful negotiator. Like I see your side, but also maybe this, um, have you thought about, um, so walking into a meeting with a client or with a meeting for my child and seeing the array of people across the table and really it's always across the table. It's, terrifying it is absolutely the scariest feeling in the world because you feel like all of these people have been coordinating behind the scenes and they all have a plan and they all have the shared data and you're walking in with maybe your spouse maybe just yourself maybe with 
you know, another, another, a friend, a grown up, your own advocate, or maybe your child. And now you have to take on all these people by yourself. And that's not really fair. It doesn't seem right because then it doesn't foster that teamwork mentality that is written into the law that parents are equal participants under the law in special education. And I think that sometimes we forget that. That's a good point. A very good point. I mean, cause that's one of the things that, uh, you know, I, I've always tried to remind uh, teachers that when you're going to have this and administrators, excuse me, I shouldn't, I don't want to just um, disclude that group too. You know, it's like, uh, um, it's, it's like, you know, maybe trying to meet with them ahead of time. So they explain the process to them so that they know that, you know, yes, it's necessary to have these people in there, but can we, can we start at first where it's not as, <laughs> you know, like in your face with uh, hello, you know, like you're in the star chamber or something mm-hmm. from ancient history. And, you know, it's, you know, like, dun, 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 we got music that should be playing and little low level lights. And uh, mm-hmm. anyway, but uh, um, by the way, I'm glad to hear that you're not one of the, uh, um, cause there are some advocates out there who uh, <laughs> come in with all guns a blazing. And I, that's probably not a good one. All, uh, <laughs> There are some advocates yeah. out there. There are some advocates out there that come in with the ability, you know, the the idea that everything's an argument, and I'm going to try and back you down into the corner or something like this. Um, so that's that's cool to hear that, uh, you know, because the idea about trying to get to some understanding is a little bit better accomplished by talking through. And that brings me to this. Um, I mean, what do you think? I mean. What thoughts do you have? Because we've heard some of it, but let's talk specifically about how schools could become better communicators with with their parents uh, that they're going to be in these meetings and such. What do you think? Well, I think it all starts with laying the groundwork um, and letting parents know their rights. So going back to the point about military spouses and military families not understanding their educational rights for their child is putting together a document. You can put it in the back to school folder or the registration pamphlet make it a PTA meeting, make it a, 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 a parent-teacher conference point of saying, I want to make you aware that you have certain rights under, under federal and state law. You can request a, an IEP, uh, an evaluation, an extra test, we could even say, on your child if you have concerns about their academic, behavioral success, their mental health. If you have a concern about your child, please let us know. We're happy to explore the options with you. Um, If your child has a disability of any kind, food allergies. um, So I grew up in the 90s before 504 was a thing, and I have a deadly dairy allergy. Luckily, my personal school was great. But parents don't know that if your child has a peanut allergy or a milk allergy or a sesame allergy or whatever allergy they have, 504 might be appropriate for them to provide those on-ramps to protect them. So having that conversation, like, hey, if your kid has a disability or a diagnosis that impacts their life, let us know so we can adjust our school so that they can be there too, safely and effectively. Does your child have an IEP? Well, great. Meet our parent procedural support liaison. They're here to help meetings run smoothly and explain the role of every person who's on the team, their contact information. Um, what they're going to do, how often you can request meetings. Um, and I think that setting the tone by using first names is important. So I like that when we started our conversation um, before we recorded, we made sure that our names were 
correct that you were saying my name and I was saying your name and we were using the same form of address. So a lot of meetings I go into, the school team is all Mr., Ms., Mrs., Dr., so-and-so, last name. And then the students' grown-ups are mom and dad. That's not fair. You're not on an equitable playing field if everyone else has a name and you're a mom. I have a name. That would be terrible. I'm sorry. I, I'm trying to keep my it's mouth rude. shut, but it would be terrible. <laughs> That's like, it's, it's like, what? <laughs> it's, it's so rude. And it puts you on an inferior footing. So starting with that and knowing everyone's name, even if it means that you have to make name tags or like have a list in front of you or put something up on the smart boards that are ubiquitous everywhere now, make sure you're calling someone by their name or setting a norm of um, if whoever's leading the meeting says, I'm Mr. So-and-so, or I'm Ms. So-and-so, um, and then tosses it over to the grown-ups, the students' grown-ups, and says, you know, Mr., Ms., or how would you like us to address you? And, and leaves it at that. And then they can say, you know, I'd like to be called Meg, or I'd like to be called Miss Flanagan, or I'd like to be called Mom. Some people like to be called their parents name by other people that are not their parents and who are also adults. Um, I, I don't like that. Um, but just explaining in parent-friendly language and then using preferred names is important. So it's honoring. It, it, it empowers you to have your name used. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, uh, I, and uh, you're making me cringe, by the way, because I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine. Because if I was a fly on the wall, I'd be buzz dive bombing them going, here's the name. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> gee whiz, that's a, yeah, that's a mistake big time. Because one of the things, like you talked about, in the way you come into a meeting is that uh, it's, it can be confrontational, and, but you don't, you don't want to be confrontational, but people can make it that way in a heartbeat. And I would think that, <laughs> I'm sorry if you don't, you know, it's just like when you give advice to a teacher in a classroom, you know, learn the kids' names as soon as you can. Well, you know, this is, this is a meeting and I think we should be using each other's names here. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. only once or twice have I had, have I had a parent, uh, say to me, I, I want you to call me Mr. So-and-so <laughs> as opposed to my first name. I actually had that happen. I think using first names makes it more conversational and, and provides more of an on-ramp to like, good communication as opposed to using you know the um the title and then a last name or mom and dad um just because it, it makes everyone feel more comfortable and cozy right if, if i'm calling you dr mulatto and you're calling me meg that's a different there's a power difference there but if i'm calling you steven you're calling me meg then the power footing is equal Meaning that we have an equal part in this. So if everyone is going by first names, then everyone has equal power at the table. And I think that helping parents to access that right is important because they are equal partners. Nothing happens for their child's education without their express consent. Uh, that's a good, it's a very good point. And it's one of those things. And that's why I like using first names. It's like, you know, if we can, if we use first names and to me, it kind of takes down some of the, you know, some of the barriers that are, that are right there automatically, because, you know, I've been in some of those meetings where you walk in and it's like, woohoo, there's a little bit of tension in this room. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and one of the things that helps is when you can talk to each other, if, if nothing else, 
it's it's a start if we can call each other by our first names and we'll go from there and uh um but uh, that's that's good stuff i, I gotta ask ask you something you, you mentioned this you're a military spouse and so we got to go into the military part of what you're talking about because uh, one of the topics um that you uh have learned about and probably may even faced yourself um is uh you know, the challenges that school-aged children of military parents face could you talk about a few of these because at first right now i'm talking about things that there's their world that they're in cause so can you talk about that yeah so military kids are just like every other child um some of them are disabled some of them are gifted some of them you know everyone is exists on a spectrum in life everyone is exactly who they need to be but Military kids are existing as they are, and they sometimes have a hand tied behind their back or um, their legs are hobbled. So military kids move on average every year and a half to two years, if you're averaging it out. The average length of a duty station rotation, so where the active duty parent is stationed, is about three years. Now, some duty stations are shorter. So for example, there are like educational duty rotations that's an academic year. So you're only there, you know, August to June, or the, the parent is only there August to June. So that child may only be in your school for one academic year. Or um, they may move mid-year. They may be an off-cycle moving family. The military has been pretty good about trying to move families in the summer months between May and September. Um, but that doesn't always happen. So sometimes families can drop in or pull out in the, the winter months. And so you're having a kiddo enter your school from somewhere else and they're brand spanking new and it's January 3rd. And now you got a new kid. Um, that's the moving aspect of it. So there's very little educational continuity for children, especially with each state and the Department of Defense Education Action, those on-base schools just for military kids. Uh, not every, well, most states are pretty good about having their standards aligned. Um, the standards are still different in every state. So example, in fourth grade, in fourth grade in Virginia, you're learning about Virginia, it's Virginia studies. In Massachusetts, it's Massachusetts studies. In California, it's California studies, which I totally get because you want your students in that, who are citizens of that state to understand that state. But what about a military kid who spent third grade in North Carolina and fourth grade in Virginia and in fifth grade is going to be moving to Germany? How valuable is that? And how, how valuable is it to count that as their education? Um, high school is another great example. Not all states present their math courses in chronological order. So in some states, math, ninth grade math is geometry. And in other states, it's algebra. And in yet other states, it's like an overview in, of you know, all of middle school math and like a catch-up year but that kid's going to move in 10th grade. And now that course they took in ninth grade does not count for graduation at their next middle, at their next high school. And so that's a challenge that military kids face is the continuity. Then they're also faced with um, the things that most people think about with military families, maybe less so um, in the last five years, because we're coming out of a 20 year deployment, a 20 year state of active warfare. The United States has been actively at war since 2001, specifically September 11th, 2001. Um, and for 20 years, we have had troops deployed around the world in active combat zones. So military kids for the last 20 years have been dealing with having mom or dad, or sometimes mom and dad, 
deployed to a place where they might not come back from. You want to talk about mental trauma and anguish? That is what military kids deal with. Um, So we're coming out of that deployment cycle, but that doesn't mean that military kids are dealing with any less trauma and anguish because people are still being deployed around the world to different places. Uh, The Marine Corps, my husband's a Marine, they constantly have people going. Um, One of our friends was deployed in Norway for a year. There's no war in Norway, but he was there because he he had to do some specialized training there for a year to learn his job better. Um, there's also the Navy ships go in and out constantly. They're either at sea or they're gone. So there's always the option of your parent not being there for really important events. I know, um, probably 10, 13 years ago, uh, when I was a new military spouse, there was that, like, it was like a reality show about like surprise deployments or surprise homecomings or whatever. And, and the, the service member would come back and like, surprise, I'm at your graduation ceremony. Imagine going to graduation and thinking, gosh, my dad's in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. That's some trauma that these military kids are holding on to. And so not only are you dealing as an educator, you're dealing with a child who has inconsistent education, but you're also dealing with a child who might have some trauma from the life that they lead and the job their parent has. Um, and then layer on top of that, the trauma of, I move so stupidly often that I have friends literally all around the world, but I don't know anyone on my street. So every three years I have to make all new friends and I have to try out all over again from the sports team and the drama club and the band. I have to find all new activities to do. And so it's a, it's a lot of work being a military child. And I mean, I'm, I'm a grown up, So I picked this, I picked this life. I picked my spouse he picked his job and we went into it with our eyes. I mean, maybe not wide open, but we had a, an idea of what this could look like. And then we added our kids to the mix. And gosh, the things that my kids are thinking about as military kids is, it's beyond what anything I could have imagined. And so I always start with a new teacher. My children are military children. Their dad has a dangerous job. I need you to know. Oh, it's so smart to make sure that they're aware. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, especially because, uh, you know, there's any number of aspects that you mentioned, but uh, it's especially from the aspect of not understanding that what you might say might be something that you, know, you might not even be cognizant of the idea that it might make the child upset about something yeah. because you have to be paying attention to where their parent may be or what they're involved in to uh, yeah. recognize that. I, you know, I have to, so tell me what, you know, now I'm going to ask you for advice. I mean, what, what advice would you give a school principal who serves a population of children of active duty parents? My first advice is to reach out to the um, military child education coalition. It's the MCEC. They have specialized for years, if not decades, in educating military children and providing training to educators of military children to be hyper-specific and aware. They offer free professional development to schools, to admin, and they are happy to provide a training. I led a couple trainings for them um, over the last few years about special ed specifically for military kids. Um, They're a wealth of knowledge and they have endless resources. They have 
teachers, active educators um, who are on their staff, on their volunteer, who can help you. Reach out to Military Child Education Coalition. I don't work for them, but I love what they do. Um, as a principal, as an admin level principal, you need to be aware of the Military Child Compact Coalition, Military Interstate Child Compact Coalition. It's MIC3, M-I-C-3. Um, and it basically guarantees the rights of military children as they move from state to state. Every single state and Puerto Rico and the Department of Defense Education schools have signed on to this. And it is a binding contract that says if a child in high school comes in and they're coming into their senior year, you have to do certain things. Some of them could be allowing them to be remote from their last school. It could, it, but it's to ensure an on-time graduation. Uh, there's protections for kids who are moving in after the sports tryout period has ended. As a principal of a school, about especially a high school where there are competitive sport programs, you have to be aware that MIC-3 says you have to let that kid try out. And if they make the team, they make the team. Um, there's additional protections for kids with um, gifted education, uh, 504 plans, and special education. It says that if you're coming from a state and this child has an education plan of any kind, your school must implement that plan at comparable service level. So if they're coming in and they're getting um, what in Virginia we call like level three advanced academic placement, you need to find out what that looks like and you need to do it. And you need to do it until you have data that shows that child no longer needs it. Um, and that's even if gifted education in your state it doesn't qualify for an IEP. So some states have the gifted individuals education plan as part of their special education program. Even if your state doesn't offer that, you need to know that MIC-3 says you do. Um, the next step would be um, in addition to reaching out to MCEC and learning about the MIC-3, um, reach out to the school liaison officer at whatever base or bases are closest to you and make sure you reach out to all school liaison officers because each branch, each service branch has their own. So if it's a joint base, so we live near the Pentagon. Um, and, you know, uh, when you reach out, you're going to reach out to the Marine Corps school liaison officer. You're going to reach out to Air Force school liaison officer, Army, uh, Navy. Coast Guard, all of them, because they, you need to have a dialogue because they have resources. They have Department of Defense money sitting there to help your school, friend. They can, they can hook you up with a military family life counselor, if possible. That's an additional social worker that comes into your school just to serve military children. That might be an option for you. But if you don't know the school liaison officer, you might not know that exists. Um, you would be surprised at how many um, people I'm connected with that they're at a school that's pretty close to a military base and they don't have, we call them MFLACs, Military Family Life Counselor, MFLC. Um, they don't have an MFLAC. They don't know who the slow is. They don't know. So, and they also can provide volunteer hours to you. So one of the things that all service members are encouraged to do, especially at the junior enlisted level, is to connect with the community and provide a benefit. So I know that when my husband was um, a junior enlisted Marine, he was encouraged to volunteer and do things in the civilian community and on base. So 
and you get credit for it. If you can go out and volunteer, you can get a like a letter of recommendation. And I've spearheaded this for other people, um, Marines that volunteered at my child's private uh, preschool. They came and did a garden renovation for us. And I, I wrote them a letter and said, like, this is what they did. Please give them credit. And it helps them get promoted. Your slow can help you coordinate that because they have the base commander's ear. And they can say, oh, man, such and such high school really needs some help with whatever. A Veterans Day project. They need to have veterans come in and do something. Great. Oh, will your principal write them a beautiful letter that says they did this for X amount of hours? Perfect. Now that, now that service member is benefiting themselves and your kids are benefiting. So just know your resources. The last thing is, I'm going to tell a personal story about this, um, is to know your audience and know where you're located and what your, what your teachers are teaching. So I live in Northern Virginia. Uh, what is near Northern Virginia? The Pentagon. We have like 17 military bases nearby. The White House. All really great things. All places where service members are at. There's also a couple of museums. The U.S. Army Museum is at Fort Belvoir. The Marine Corps Museum is at Quantico. So I took my kids during COVID, their elementary age, I took them to the Marine Corps Museum. And we walked past a certain display. And it's September 11th. And it happens to show the Pentagon with a giant hole blown in its side. My husband worked at the Pentagon at the time. So think about that. My five-year-old was now looking at a picture of the building. And I didn't think about it because I was 16 when 9-11 happened. And it's just been a part of growing up. I just accept it. This is the first time she's really seeing it. And now she sees a picture of the place where her daddy works. And it has a giant hole blown in the side of it. And she couldn't go any further. She was so terrified that that was going to happen to her dad. Even though I explained it happened, you know, it happened 20 years ago. I was, I was just a kid then. It's, it's not going to happen again. But she had so many questions about that. And she was so afraid for him to go to work the next day that it, it blew my mind. So if you have a child and, and there's stories like this everywhere, right? So I'm thinking about there's been helicopter crashes during trainings, um, there's, you know, think about what you are going to be talking about to the children in your classroom in terms of their military parent experience. Now, if in a classroom of elementary school students that live near the Pentagon, whose parents might work at the Pentagon, are we really going to be showing them graphic images of the Pentagon blown up? Really not my finest moment as a parent, but that shouldn't be the moment as a teacher that you have to handle. And they shouldn't have to handle it either. That should be a conversation to have with their parents about what it means to, to deal with the fallout of this. Um, and, and so just being aware of who your kids are, who their parents are, where their parents work, what their parents have gone through. Um, some parents have hidden, have hidden illnesses. Some parents have active hidden illnesses, PTSD, CTE. They're dealing with a lot of trauma, personality changes. They might have physical injuries. The parents might have come back from war different or from a training cycle different. And as a principal, as a teacher in a school with military kids, you need to be aware that kids are going to be the invisible caregivers for their parents. This is so powerful what you're talking about. The, uh, you know, and uh, especially as a child, being a caregiver, um, also someone who's trying to keep a, 
a balance between, you know, as a child, uh, you can only imagine the ones who are fairly successful at keeping a balance between what they really feel and then, you know, a good stiff upper lip or whatever you want to talk about to, to try mm-hmm. and make sure that mom or dad see me as being okay, you know, and that mm-hmm. type of thing. And, you know, it's, uh, and so something as simple as being not really paying attention to the fact of what you say could, you know, just <laughs> cause an issue that uh, you don't even see it happen. They, they, they go home and they, they either keep it in or whatever. And uh, that's, that's, that's interesting what you're talking about. Cause I, I um, you know, that's <laughs> just a no, that's one of the problems I have a lot of times with TVs um, where they have immediate access. So all the, the stuff happens now. I, I, I might sound like an ogre, but uh, you know, it's, I, I was always a big fan of having, I went to a, a military school where I, where I got my commission in the army and, and uh, they had this cool thing that was in the commandant's office where they could flip the switch and all the cable would go out. <laughs> and, and as a note, so when I became a principal, I had experienced something at a school or as an assistant principal. And uh, I went to this next school and I said, I, way before something happened, I said, uh, can we make it so that I can just flip a switch so that if we can, cause that's what, what had happened at that school was a number of things, but uh, the first non-thinking one was where there was a series of tornadoes that were touching down, and uh, teachers were turning on the TV and focusing on the news, and and what was happening, what they didn't realize was that they had kids in there who were, exp- who were upset and crying because this was a high school, because they're, they kn- they had a sibling or somebody at that elementary school where the tornado was touching down near and stuff like this. And, um, we basically unplugged the computer, the the system to get them to turn off the TVs. Um, and so as a note, as a principal, I learned, you know, it's, there's some things like that. That's not a bad idea because you just gotta be ready to be in trouble because people can be mad at you. They, I think there's still people mad at me because (laughs) flipping that switch on a couple of occasions, but, uh, you know, I, I think that's so Im- important what you're talking about is, is recognizing that and, and making those connections because one of the things that's really cool is that, yeah, guess what? The military has funds in order to help take care of their their members and uh, and their children. So very cool stuff. Great advice. Uh, and so I got to so, – so, Meg, one of the things before we, we wrap up, I got to make sure that you uh, uh, you get a chance to talk about your, your consulting service called Education Solutions. Could you do that for a minute? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I I called it Mike Flanagan Education Solutions because I wanted people to be able to associate me with it. And then Education Solutions is, my original name was Mill Kids Education. Um, But I wanted to make sure that that parents felt empowered, whether they have a military connection or not, to to work with me. Um, So what I provide is personalized educational coaching, consulting, and advocacy. So coaching is I have conversations behind the scenes with parents to help them understand more strategic, clear ways to communicate with the teachers and admin at their child's school so that it's effective, so that they're actually heard. Um, So, you know, making sure like they're going into meetings, Um, I'll ghost write them a script, which was easier in, you know, when everything is on Zoom, it's easier to just have your script right there on your, on your computer or whatever. Um, I have all your questions that you sent me earlier pulled up so I can reference them. Um, but to make sure they know what to say. So that's the coaching aspect. And then the coaching aspect is also helping them to see their child with clear eyes. 
um, based on the data and the learner profile of their child that I'm creating for them. Um, and so a lot of these kids, I, I mostly deal with their parents because most of them are, are in elementary school. Um, and so with COVID, you know, I, I haven't really been able to meet my child clients for several years now. Um, but sometimes I'll, I'll, the coaching aspect is I'll look at all their data and I'll tell the parent what kind of learner I think their child is based on the diagnosis, based on the data, based on what I've seen in the classroom for the last 10, 15 years. And I was like, oh my gosh, are you sure you've never met my child? I'm like, I'm pretty sure you would know. You have to give consent. They're like, that's exactly my child. They are blah, 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 blah. Um, I'm like, yeah, I know. That's, that's what the data is. Um, so that leads me into the consulting part, which is I really just look at the data and I tell them what it says. You know, this is your child. These are the areas of strength and weakness based on this, based on this, this data from this assessment. I can tell your child probably needs extra help in phonemic awareness. Well, gosh, you're, the best practice for a child with phonological differences are this program, this program, or this program. You should ask the school for those programs. Or were you aware the special education law says? Now, I'm not a lawyer. I can't give legal advice. I think that's a very important distinction. But I can point you to the, to the laws that will help explain your options. And I can help put those laws into human terms based on everything that I've experienced over the last several years and all the training that I've done and, and all of that. Um, the advocacy part comes when I am actually in a meeting virtual or in person with a, with a parent or a guardian to help them. And I, I speak up as the voice of the child. Um, I don't speak up for the parents. I help present their, their ideas and their opinions in teacher-friendly language. Um, and then I act as the interpreter, the teacher interpreter, and I help put the teacher language into parent language. So I, I might say something like, well, when they're talking about X, Y, Z, what they really mean is they want your kid to be able to rhyme or they want your child to be able to read three-letter words where there's a consonant, vowel, consonant, like cat. They want them to be able to whatever and explaining what it is that the benchmark behavior is. Um, and so I provide those for children with 50 with disabilities, uh, with IEPs, with special education, and for kiddos with gifted education. Um, and for military families, I help them find new schools. Uh, I mentioned school liaison officers. They can give you lots of information. They're a really good clearinghouse of information. Um, they can tell you all the schools that exist for your child in a particular region. What they can't do is say, well, based on your child's learner profile, this school, this school, or this school is going to be the best bet. They can't do an in-depth analysis or provide you questions to ask the school. Um, but I can do that, and I can give you an opinion, or at least like a field of opinions. Very cool. Uh, that's awesome. I, and uh, can't say enough about it, and it's, it's really cool the, the way you're supporting parents and uh, their children and helping them in the different um, different the roles that you would you would play here is uh is really awesome and i can only imagine uh um especially the children of uh military families who are going from place to place how just the the world is you know to having to is one thing to have to deal with new teachers new school new administration but it's a whole nother thing that every time you go someplace new i gotta make friends again you know that type of thing. And so it's nice to have somebody who's helping you 
um, navigate, especially your parents navigate whatever's going on with the school and such. So cool. Very cool. Uh, you know, um, one of the things I got to get you to talk about is you've written a couple of eBooks, uh, one of which I got simply by uh, filling out a little form on your website. Uh, you want to tell them about your uh, eBooks? Absolutely. So I have um, uh, several eBooks. Um, so I have School Success for Busy Parents, and this is basically a free eBook that I put together um, using the best homework tips and solutions I've gained and gleaned and gathered over the last several years as a mom, a tutor, and as a teacher. Um, and it lays out really a roadmap of how to structure your child's after-school time using best practices. So there's snack suggestions in there um, because really, no really, what do you do after a long day of work? You come home and you grab yourself a snack and like a glass of water or whatever your beverage of choice is after work. I don't know. But your child needs the same thing. They need a break. Um, and so this lays out how to, uh, how to approach the homework hours best practices, how many minutes of homework your child should be doing at each age and stage, um, and really just is a toolkit. Um, the other book that I wrote is called Talk to the Teacher, and it's basically me, but in book form. Um, I give you very generalized scripts about how to attack and approach a variety of school situations from the regular old parent-teacher conference to the oh-no moment of my child is in trouble at school, what do I do? Um, and so I, I, it's like a recipe book. Um, you can read it. You can, there's an ebook version. There's a physical book version and it has worksheets in there, tracking pages. So you can help keep track of your communication with the teacher. If there's an ongoing concern, um, I think it's a really great resource. I just, I self published that one because I just wanted to get it out there. Um, and then the last, I have like a little mini course with an ebook called, um, IEP testing secrets. And that's also a freebie that you can get and it outlines uh, and gives you a, a framework for how to request special education testing for your child at school. There's even like a form letter in there that you just drag and drop your child's information in. Very nice, very nice. And so uh, uh, we got to make sure that uh, you give me some information. So I put it in the uh, show notes for that. And which is going to bring me to this, because before we close, if someone wanted to learn more, where would you send them? I would send them to megflanagan.com. Um, <clears throat> that's it. <laughs> Excellent. It's yeah. And that's where all my information is. I'm also on Facebook at Meg Flanagan education on Twitter and Instagram at Meg Flanagan ed and Meg Flanagan education. Um, I'm mostly on Facebook though, <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> Very cool. So I will, I will put all the social media stuff as well as your website on the, uh, in the show notes. And, uh, for my listeners, you know, whether you're on a, a desktop, a laptop or, uh, or, for example, your mobile phone, you just go to your mobile phone and my show notes right there and you'll be able to click on her website or on her social media so that you can go join, uh, ask Meg questions and so forth right there from your phone. So good stuff. And uh, I'll have all that stuff in the show notes. And uh, um, last two questions for you, Meg. I got, I got uh, the first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? Um, boundaries. Um, so I run my own business and I am an intervention reading and math teacher at the same time. And I've given this advice to teachers for years because my dad gave it to me earlier in my career. As a teacher, you have a contract and you have contractual duties and you have contract hours. Yes, you can do all the things and you can be all the things for all the people, but you need to weigh the priorities in life. And so don't, 
respect the boundaries of your contract. Work your contract hours. If your contract hours say seven to four, you can be there, you know, 6.45 to 4.15 and then walk away because you're a human being and you deserve a break. Um, and even though you're a teacher and you want to solve all the problems in the world, work on the problems for the kids in your classroom that you can handle and seek support when needed. Um, and so I, I give myself a lot of boundaries. That's very cool. Great advice. The last question for you. Uh, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? So my teacher knows that he is this person to me. So Harry Proudfoot taught at Westport High School for over 20 years. Um, he was my AP English history, my English 11 history. Uh, no, sorry, my AP English teacher, my English 11 teacher, my journalism teacher, and he was a huge mentor in my life. And so he has transitioned to being a mentor and a friend as I've aged and become an adult as well. Um, he taught me to be kind to myself. He taught me to always be um, willing to entertain the unusual in life, to think beyond the boundaries, to go after sources, to be tenacious, and to be human. Um, he taught with his wife, Jane Dabowski. They met and married while both teaching at Westport High School in Massachusetts. Um, and she passed away in 2010 from neuroendocrine tumors. Um, it's an unusual hidden cancer um, that really just destroys the body. It's a zebra. Um, people don't look for it. People don't know about it, but it is, it is non-curable. Um, it is terminal. She passed away after a valiant struggle. And uh, Harry went on to found the Walking with Jane Foundation, which helps fund valuable uh, neuroendocrine tumor research at um, a variety of hospitals in Boston, at Mass General in particular. Um, he is an inspiration. He is a human being who has taught thousands of students how to be better human beings. That is awesome. That is so awesome. Thank you for sharing. Uh, Meg, it was awesome talking with you today. You have an awesome focus and desire to help parents and children in the military and civilian world. Wish you the best with Meg Flanagan Education Solutions. It's very cool. And uh, you'll find those, that information in the show notes and how to get in touch with Meg. Um, wishing you all the best in all that you do. Thank you so much. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.